If you'd open up your Bible, please, to the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 1 is where we'll be here in just a moment. Proverbs chapter 1 and verse 10. Proverbs chapter 1 and verse 10. The 80s, 90s, and 2000s all had some variation of the this is your brain on drugs commercial. Raise your hand if you remember those commercials. Yeah, so it's got a guy with an egg, right? And he says, this is your brain. And then he's got a frying pan and he cracks it open and he puts it in the frying pan. This is your brain on drugs. Any questions? That's the 80s version. The 90s version had a a lady on it, and after she does that, she takes the pan and she kind of destroys the entire kitchen. Maybe that's appropriate for the 90s and kind of the feel of the 90s. In the 2000s, it was the same commercial from the 80s, except it said, any questions? And then it cut to a bunch of kids that said, yeah, I've got lots of questions, and then they asked questions. I'm not sure exactly how effective those campaigns were in keeping people from doing drugs, Um, To me, maybe perhaps it was just all a little abstract. It wasn't quite real enough. Uh, Maybe I'm not the target audience. I don't know. But as I think about that, I think something that was always more effective to me as I thought about those things was seeing pictures of of real-life people. In 2009, uh, I was up in Lindale, and I was finishing my uh, principal certification. I was almost done with it. In fact, all I had left was my internship. And so I interned with the principal there at the Lufkin Middle School. Uh, and, and before I say what I say next, she was very, very helpful to me, very, very gracious in taking me on as an intern, all those sorts of things. So only positive feelings toward her. We got that? But, there's always a but, isn't there? As the semester wore on, she gave me more and more duties, and usually those duties were just, hey, I don't want to do this, Reagan will do it for me. And so that's how I de facto became in charge of Red Ribbon Week uh, for Lindale Middle School. And so I did a lot of research, I, I came across a number of different things, and one of the things that I came across that was super effective to me was the faces of meth. Have you seen this? And it shows people, and it shows them the first time they're arrested, and then it shows them uh, weeks or months or years later when they're arrested again. Uh, And they're pretty uh, gruesome, right? Two and a half years later, that's the difference. One and a half years later, that's the difference. Four years later, that's the difference. Three months later, that's the difference. To me, that's, that's more effective, right? And we ask the question, why would you do this to yourself? You are the one who is being harmed. It's self-destructive. And I can't even look at that for too long because it just kind of makes me sad that, that people do this to themselves. And we know, of course, that there is more that goes into that than just that concept. But showing someone these pictures is really an appeal for self preservation And again, I don't know how effective these pictures would be on teens, but there is a sense in which God has has wired into us a need to save and preserve ourselves. We have that in ourselves. And many of who have had to overcome various habitual issues in their lives, maybe something as extreme as drug addiction, finally had to do it for themselves. Not by themselves, not all alone, but but for themselves, because they knew they needed to, not just because someone else told them that they should. And it was often only then when it really stuck. This concept of self-destruction versus self-preservation is found in the Bible as well. 
And that's our topic this evening, lying in wait for our own blood, sin, and self-destruction. And so if you're there in Proverbs chapter 1, let's begin reading in verse 10. After describing wisdom, and he's going to describe wisdom in, in greater detail, Solomon speaks to his son, calling him to hear his instruction, and he says this in verse 10. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie and wait to shed blood, let us lurk secretly for the innocent without cause, let us swallow them alive like Sheol and whole like those who go down to the pit. We shall find all kinds of precious possessions. We shall fill our houses with spoil. Cast your lot among us. Let us all have one purse. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Keep your foot from their path. For their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed blood. Surely in vain the net is spread in the sight of any bird, but they lie in wait for their own blood. They're setting an ambush for themselves. They lurk secretly for their own lives. Now, we know that there is a sense in which all sin is self-destructive. Of course, we know that. Sin, when you get right down to it, doesn't make any sense. Why would I give up eternity and all of the good things that come from God for this moment of pleasure, for this physical trinket on this life? All sin is self-destructive. Sin separates us from God and the source of all life and blessings eternally. However, more specifically... There are certain sins where the Bible specifically emphasizes the self-destructive nature of the sin itself. And often this concept applies to sins where we think in committing these sins that someone else is going to be hurt in some way, but the one who is hurt the most is ourselves. With some sins, ironically, We are hurt in the very way we expect others to be hurt. And there's a certain justice to this, I suppose, or maybe it's a cruel irony, maybe. But that's exactly what we see in these verses, right? In verse 11 and verse 16, they are lying in wait to shed the blood of others. But by the time you get to verse 18, they're shedding their own blood in the sins that they're committing. They are bringing the fate that they sought for others Upon themselves. And there are lots of really good and clear examples of this in our Bibles, both uh, Old and New Testaments. I, I think we see that clearly. Maybe the best example in all the Bible of this is Haman in the book of Esther. You remember that? Uh, The opposite occurred. That's one of those themes that we see in the book of Esther. The gallows that Haman made for Mordecai, who's hung on those gallows? Haman is, right? And that day where all of the enemies of the Jews are supposed to be able to kill the Jews, who actually gets killed on that day? All of the enemies of the Jews. And so they had sin in mind where I'm going to commit this sin, and then the very thing that they wanted to come upon other people is what comes upon themselves. But what about us? What about us in our day-to-day lives? How do we... Lie and wait for our own blood if we're not careful. Well, notice with me this evening five examples of self-destructive sins. And the first example is from right here in our context. We see greed and covetousness is one of these self 
destructive sins. Keep reading down in verse 19. So are the ways. The Septuagint actually says, so is the end, and that's probably more accurate, of everyone who is greedy for gain. It takes away the life of its owners. Now, at first blush, we think about that and we say, now, greed, covetousness, how, how is this self-destructive? You know, greedy people tend to get rich, right? Greedy people, covetous people tend to have more possessions than others. That's not always the case. But a lot of times it seems as though they're blessed or at least they have those things for which they're seeking. How is this self-destructive? Well, turn to Luke chapter 12. Uh, beyond the fact that the wise man Solomon says that it is, I think we can illustrate this pretty well in Luke chapter 12. Um, there are other examples that we could use uh, from our Bibles, but I, I really like this parable that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 12 to illustrate this point. We'll start reading in verse 13 of Luke chapter 12. Then one from the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now keep in mind that Jesus is right in the middle of some teaching right here. Jesus is teaching and he's going through this and then out of the crowd somebody says, Hey, my brother hadn't given me what he's supposed to. Tell him to divide the inheritance. This is an interruption of what Jesus is saying. And so what does Jesus say in response? Verse 14. He said to him, man, who, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? In, in a physical, social sense, Jesus didn't come to settle these kinds of physical matters. His point is, you're focused on the wrong thing. You're so absorbed with this, you're interrupting what I'm saying to ask about this. I've got something to tell you. I'm not going to tell you who's in the right and who's in the wrong between you and your brother. I'm going to warn you about your attitude. And he said to them, verse 15, Take heed and beware of covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. Then he spoke a parable to them, saying... The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully, and he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns, and I will build greater, and there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. Uh, my dad, who's going to be here in a few weeks, so I may be stealing this from him, uh, he's always said of this passage, this guy had a personal pronoun problem, right? It was all about him. It was all about what he wanted and what he had in his life. And so again, we come back and say, well, how is this self-destructive? He's covetous. He's got lots of stuff. Well, here's how the parable ends. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will these things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Now obviously the most important point to make from this text is he's missing out on true treasure, right? He's not rich toward God. He's not provided for any things in eternity. But can I make a secondary point when we think about the self-destructive nature of sin? Jesus says, uh, when he introduces this parable, that one's life does not consist of the abundance of the things he possesses. 
What are the very best things in life? Is it money? Is it the things that money can buy? And my question is, what did this rich man lose out on in his pursuit of these physical things, in his greed and in his covetousness? Well, you see something in what God says to him, fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Notice, then whose will these things be which you have provided? You know what the implication is there? He didn't have anybody left to give these things to. In his pursuit of all of these physical things and his greed and covetousness, there was no one left for him to leave these things. There was no one there to have an inheritance because this greed and covetousness had taken away from him the very best things in life. And if we are so consumed with money and the pursuit of money and our work in order to get that money, we might leave ourselves in a position where there are no relationships left to whom we can leave these things. And it is really self-destructive in terms of life and the best things of life. The one we are harming is ourself at least the most. The second example uh, comes from Matthew chapter 7, and it is judging others harshly. Turn to Matthew chapter 7, if you would, Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, uh, verse 1 is maybe uh, top five, I would say, verses that people know, even those who aren't Christians. Matthew chapter 7 and verse 1, Judge not that you be not judged. But then let's read verse 2. For... With what judgment you judge, you will be judged, and the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Uh, Bill Reeves, Granddaddy Reeves, uh, he always talked about this idea of others judging, and there was a phrase that he always used in judging others harshly. He says this, I don't know why they would do that to themselves. I don't know why they would do that to themselves. Doesn't that sound like Bill Reeves? Now, Granddaddy, if you knew him, he had high standards for other people, didn't he? But I will say this about him without fear of contradiction. There was no one he held to a higher standard than himself. And the reason why he had high standards for others is because he had high standards for himself. And so this passage, I think rightly, is not so much a matter of us lowering the standards of others. You know, I can't call anybody out on their sin. Who am I to judge? And, you know, well, you know, I I don't want to ruffle any feathers because I don't want to be judged the same way. It's not about lowering standards. It's about making sure we don't hold anyone else to a higher standard than we do ourselves. Such is hypocrisy. Now, I want to be judged graciously and gently, as gently as possible. And so I need to judge others in the same way. And the best way for us to do this is by that word empathy. How would I want someone to judge me if I were in their shoes? Uh, Among preachers specifically, um, preachers, preaching is my occupation. Um, Among preachers, I get frustrated sometimes because... I judge other preachers as not being as precise with their language as I would like them to be. 
But I have to remember, and hopefully I do, that in my own preaching, I know the reality that there have been times that I've said things that I've not intended to say. Uh, In fact, this was six or seven years ago. Um, uh, One of you wonderful people met me in the, the foyer out there and said to me, Reagan, I can't believe you said such and such in your sermon. What did you mean by that? And you know what my response and response was? I didn't say that. That's not what I said. And so in the afternoon, I went and I listened to the lesson. You know what I said? Exactly that. And in fact, I said audibly to myself, alone in the car, well, I did say that, didn't I? And I had to go and I had to apologize to this person. It's not what I intended to say. It's not what I meant to say. But that's what I said. And I was not as precise as I should have been. So, how then do I judge other people? There is nothing... There is nothing that is more important to be precise about than proclaiming the word of God. We need to be oh so careful. But we all make mistakes in that. And we're going to make mistakes. And God's word is powerful enough to overcome the mistakes of even people who uh, are imperfect vessels. And so we have to be careful that we are not judging others too harshly. Not just in regard to that, that's from what I do. What about with you? What about what you do for a living? What about the way you raise your children? How would I want someone to judge me if I were in their shoes? And sometimes the answer to that question is, I would want some tough love from somebody. I'd want somebody to come and, yes, judge me and say, Reagan, you need to do better. But let's not lie to ourselves in this. Let's not judge others more harshly than we judge ourselves. In so doing, we are only hurting ourselves because God is going to judge us by that same standard. Number three, an example of self-destructive sin is not forgiving leading to bitterness. If you're still there in Matthew, go back to Matthew chapter 6. In the same sermon, Matthew chapter 6 and verses 14 and 15. For if... After giving the model prayer, Jesus says, You forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So this is ultimately self-destructive, not forgiving. But I think there is, again, a physical element to this, just like there was with greed and covetousness. We see that sometimes this not forgiving can lead to bitterness. Turn to Hebrews chapter 12, if you would. Hebrews chapter 12. And notice what the Hebrew writer says of this. In Hebrews chapter 12, verses 14 through 17. Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any... Root of bitterness springing up caused trouble. Now, bitterness comes from unresolved conflict. And by this, many become defiled. So he uses an example of someone who was a part of unresolved conflict. Lest there be any fornicator or godless person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. He had no foresight. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected For he found no place for repentance. He could not change the mind of his father, the American Standard Version says, though he sought it diligently with tears. This bitterness ultimately led him to a place 
where he was consumed by that bitterness. He even sought to kill his brother at one point. And he found no place to change the mind of his father. This is where that bitterness ultimately left him. Bitterness, we are told, is a consuming poison. No place for repentance is found in the Father because no forgiveness was offered. And we might think we're really going to get someone back by not forgiving them. But the reality is they're likely not even that hurt by it. Big John Adams, boy, I'm quoting all of the greats that have passed tonight. Big John Adams used to say, bitterness is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. We're only hurting ourselves. Number four, the, the fourth self-destructive sin I want us to think about tonight is comparing to justify self. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. This comparison game is what the uh, super apostles, as Paul sarcastically calls them, were doing with one another. They compared themselves to other people to puff themselves up, make themselves look good. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 12, this is what Paul says of that. For we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves. But they, measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves, are not wise. Now that's ironic, isn't it? Because what did these super apostles think about themselves? We are so wise. And if you don't believe how wise we really are, just look at how wise we are in comparison to other people. And what Paul says of them, they are not wise. They are without understanding, the New American Standard says. The wise people have become fools because of this comparison game to justify themselves. Because these supposedly wise people lack the sense to comprehend that God's approval really operates on the basis of his standard, not theirs, not ours. It's not the standard that I give to myself in comparing myself with others. It is God's objective standard that determines where I, whether I am wise or foolish. And if we play this kind of comparison game, we might be shocked to find ourselves not justified by God when we on the basis of our comparison to others, we're so sure that we were justified by God. Uh, the perfect example of this is in Luke chapter 18. Um, again, let's turn to the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke, this time the 18th chapter. Another parable of Jesus that makes this point so powerfully. Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 9. He also spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, Jesus tells us 
This man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. The Pharisee is not justified by God like he expected to be, like he, like he assumed that he would be. Instead, it is the tax collector who is justified, which the Pharisee did not expect. In fact, he uses him as a perfect example of the kind of person who's not justified. And this comparison to justify ourselves means that we will not be justified by God. And that's a scary thought indeed. There are two questions that we should ask ourselves, neither of which involves comparing ourselves with others. Number one, I should ask, am I doing what God would have me to do? Am I doing what God would have me to do? I don't have to compare myself to others in order to answer that question. I have to compare myself to the Word of God. And then number two, am I doing the best I can do? We've all been given different talents, We've all been given different abilities. We've all been given different opportunities by God. And God knows those talents, abilities, and opportunities perfectly. He knows exactly what we're capable of and what we're not. And he knows that, not just of us, but of every other single person who lives now, whoever has lived, and whoever will live. How foolish is it then for me to compare myself with someone else who has differing talents, abilities, and opportunities. That kind of comparison to justify myself leaves me in a place where I cannot and will not be justified by God. It's, it's self-destructive, and I'm only hurting myself. There are lots and lots of other examples that we could give. We'll give just one more this evening, and it is sexual sin. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, if you would with me, please. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. First Corinthians chapter six. Uh, let's start in verse twelve. All things are lawful for me. That's what Paul's opponents were saying. Hey, I can do whatever I want. All things are lawful. Paul responds and says, "But all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me." His opponents say. Paul says, "But I will not be brought under the power of any." His opponents say. Foods for the stomach and the stomach for foods, but God will destroy both it and them. Our body doesn't matter. That's what they're saying. But Paul says in response, Now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God both raised up the Lord and will raise us up by His power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. So there was this false teaching that was going around that you could do whatever you want with your body. When we talked about gender issues, we looked at this text in some detail. But that idea of I can do whatever I want with my body as long as I keep my mind okay, as long as my mind is set and doing God's will, that's all that really matters. Paul says that's not the case at all. God wants all of you. He wants your mind, he wants your spirit, he wants your soul, and he wants your body. 
He wants all of you. And sometimes when we think about sexual sin, we think, well, you know, this is just for pleasure and other people are involved in it, sure, but, but really, as long as I can come back to God with my mind, everything is going to be okay. But what does he say in verse 18? Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body. I think that's what his opponents were saying. Hey, you do sins and it's your body, but it doesn't matter. But what does Paul say? He who commits sexual immorality sins against what? His own body. It's self-destructive. And the one whom you are hurting the most, ultimately, perhaps, is yourself. Sexual sin is different in that it uses the body as the means of sin, to sin. Using it for a purpose it was never intended to be used for. And sadly, if we were to stop and think about it, the only person we view as being harmed when we commit sin like this, used, abused, dirty, generally is the other person. The other person is who is viewed as the harlot to use for our own pleasure when the reality is we are sinning against our own body. And we are hurting ourselves as much as we are hurting them. And that applies to lust and pornography and fornication and all sexual sins. Which brings us back to the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 2, 5, and 7 all warn against being snared by the crafty harlot. And no doubt, we live in a time and in a culture where we are bombarded constantly with with things of a sexual nature. And there is no doubt that there are people out there whose intent and desire is to lead us astray in this way. But in the midst of all of those warnings, this is not some sort of victim blaming as as some people have suggested. In the midst of those warnings, in chapter 5 and verse 22, he says... His own iniquities entrap the wicked man, and he is caught in the cords of his sin. And in chapter 6 and verse 32, he says again, Whoever commits adultery with a woman lacks understanding. He who does so destroys his own soul. We are ultimately hurting ourselves in this way. And that makes this sin self-destructive. So what's our conclusion tonight? I thought a lot about how I wanted to wrap all of this up, and I think I want to wrap it up this way. As we think about lying in wait for our own blood, may I just encourage you to save yourself. Save yourself from the destruction that you might be bringing upon yourself. And maybe what we need is to put two pictures up. A picture of what we can be in Christ, what we are in Christ, And a picture of the destruction that could come upon us if we choose to turn our back on him. However we do it, we need to see the destruction these sins cause. And yes, the the destruction these sins cause in the lives of those that we love, or even to God and our relationship with Christ, all sin is ultimately against God. But also see the destruction that these sins cause to me, to you. To all who commit them, we're lying in wait for our own blood. Of course, it isn't just these five. It isn't just these sins. But as we said from the very beginning, in the final analysis, all sin is self-destructive. 
In Proverbs 11 and verse 19, as righteousness leads to life, so he who pursues evil pursues it to his own death. And so I want us all to turn back one more time to Proverbs chapter 1. And let's look later in the chapter, Proverbs chapter 1, beginning in verse 27. God says, when your terror comes like a storm and your destruction comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call on me, on wisdom, on God, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but they will not find me, because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. They would have none of my counsel and despised my every rebuke. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their own way and be filled to the full with their own fancies. For the turning away of the simple will slay them and the complacency of fools will destroy them. But whoever listens to me will dwell safely and will be secure without fear of evil. Uh, Part of the reason why I chose the five sins that I chose Obviously, they fit with being self-destructive, first of all. But secondly, these are sins that are so common. Sins that we've all had to face temptation for. Maybe we overcame it. Maybe we didn't. But these are sins that we all have to face. And we knew that they were sinful. And we know that there are ramifications, consequences for them. And why do we know that? Because God has warned us. And he has warned us going all the way back to the Old Testament, to the New. We have God's word to direct us. And whoever listens to God and his wisdom will dwell in safety. But those who turn away from that truth destroy. Well, they destroy themselves. And so my final admonition is to hear God's truth. Hear God's truth and obey it. Because that is how we save ourselves. You're here this evening and you're not yet a Christian, the first thing that you need to do is hear God's truth in regard to salvation, to do what God has called you to do. Maybe you need to put Christ on in baptism so that you might rise to walk in newness of life following the path and seeing the end of the righteous. But maybe you're here this evening and you found yourself in these kinds of self-destructive sins and you want to break that cycle. That path can begin tonight. And maybe what you need is help and support from your brothers and sisters in Christ. And we'll pray for you. We'll pray with you. We'll do whatever we can to help you. But know that God is calling you. And he has the power to save. If you'll come now, while together we stand and while we sing. Who 